Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 135, recorded on September 15th, 2021. The Cloud Pod goes to Google Cloud Toronto, eh? <laughs> good evening, Peter, Jonathan, and Ryan. How's it going? Good. Pretty good. Uh, yeah, it's a uh, you know been a week. I'm ready for vacation. Yeah, so one more week to go. <laughs> yeah. Just counting counting down the hours at this point to get away get away for a while. So. All right. Well, uh, you know we are full of news once again this week, uh, and so we will get into it right away here. First up, uh, current sponsor Jump Cloud has raised 159 million dollars in a Series F round at a 2.56 billion dollar valuation. Which all I can say is, see guys, AD really does. Something. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Uh, several trends have led to rethinking of the directory service predominantly owned by AD. And there's a quote here from Chief Product Officer Jagadish Kunda. Uh, JumpCloud is an open platform that leverages industry standards. This matters because as workers demand to use whatever technology they want to be productive, IT has, to be, has, to have, has had a choice to say no and become a blocker or buy a bunch of different tools to support secure access for the different technologies. JumpCloud provides a better option, a central directory that securely unifies identity and device management. Uh, apparently, overall investment in IAM as a market is on the rise with the recent Okta acquisition of Auth0 and new companies attracting a ton of VC money. Uh, I saw $11 million round just a couple weeks ago, in fact. Uh, and JumpCloud actually also raised a $100 million E round in January before they were sponsoring us. And with this announcement, uh, they have raised a total of $350 million in investment so far. So congratulations to JumpCloud. Again, 80 sucks. Go use JumpCloud instead. And it's less than, still less than a tenth of the valuation of Okta. Still, yeah, that's, that's a great valuation for, for only three fifty um, of an investment, though. Yeah, that's amazing. There's a lot of people who don't want to pay Microsoft any, any more uh, any more money, pay the Microsoft tax, I guess. Well, and it's just so complex. Like it, you know, it'd be one thing if it was, you know, it was paying for AD and you already had it established, and then, you know, and then you could, you know, open the service up to your users and stuff. But it it becomes really difficult to manage these things. And then you're sort of tied to the AD heart of the thing. So it's... Mm-hmm. Vendor lock-in. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We've seen smaller companies uh, use this to very quickly get through a lot of the hurdles around um, authentication, authorization, IAM type things for high trust certification. So that it's nice when you have a simple tool that checks the boxes. Jonathan and I used this at a prior life uh, where we worked together, and you know this was how we authenticated to all of our servers across you know hundreds of AWS accounts, and it was just a simple way to do it with, that kind of crossed the multi-account border, which because nothing existed at the time, you didn't have cross IAM roles, you didn't have single sign-on, you know, th- you know we're talking you know, eight or nine years ago at this point, yeah. <laughs> so you know just a long time ago before things existed. So we you know I, I've been a long-time Jump Cloud customer in the past. Uh, you know, and then you have a lot of new stuff too, which is well, but you know, getting into MDM, getting into zero trust access, getting into these things, those valuations are going up because that's what the market's demanding right now. So, you know, you could argue for a while they were maybe too early, but the market's not caught up to them and they are perfectly placed. And it's all API driven as well, which is great because how many times have you heard, how do you do something in Windows is click, click, click through the, through the, uh, through the console, through the UI, all API driven. Or worse, learn yeah. PowerShell. I mean, you, you can use PowerShell <laughs> to, to, um, to script for Jump Cloud too, if you really want to. But all API driven, so so you can automate everything. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. Good luck to them. 
Yeah, congratulations to them. Uh, it was nice raising money. Maybe they'll renew their sponsorship with us. Yeah. <laughs> well, we can take partial credit now, right? I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's what and Corey Quinn does that for every time you know one of the companies in his newsletter gets bought. Like we should take credit for. Yeah, they got yeah. around because they sponsored yeah. us. So yeah, you're welcome. I'll talk to our marketing contact there and say, hey, hey. <laughs> All right, let's move on to news stories at AWS. Uh, first up, a story that no one could have predicted. Amazon Elasticsearch is now Amazon Open Search Service and supports Open Search 1.0. Uh, with the rename, Open Search now becomes the core service and supports Open Search 1.0, as well as prior versions of Elasticsearch prior to the closed source pivot they've done. Uh, AWS is committed to continuing to deliver the same experiences without any negative impact to ongoing ops, development, or business uses. And they wanted to highlight all the features that they include that the open source version of Elasticsearch does not, including advanced security, SQL query syntaxing, reporters, reporting including scheduled reports, novelty detection via ML, index management, performance analyzer, and RCA framework to tell you what's going wrong in your cluster, async search, trace anal- analytics, alerting, uh, some type of nearest neighbor ML thing I don't understand, <laughs> byte processing languages, and dashboard notebooks to allow you to combine all your dashboards, visualizations, text, and more to provide context. Uh, and they want to point out that transforms, data streams, and notebooks are all features exclusive to the open search dashboards and not available in any ESS version. So they're already uh, you know, differentiating themselves in a big way uh, in a couple of key areas, which is interesting. Yeah, this is, I mean, they're focusing on areas that are really big customer pain points for using open source Elasticsearch and when doing that evaluation. And, you know, there's certain things in here like, you know, security, which we believe that should always be free. That they're throwing, that they're doing, which is not in the open search, the Elasticsearch offering. Uh, but yeah, some of the the dashboard dashboarding that they're putting in there is really sweet um, and allows what I think is a fairly clunky process to be much more you know user friendly. You don't have to jump around Kibana to different components to try to figure out how to visualize your data. It's nice. Yeah, very happy. Yeah, super happy with their first release. So I can't wait to see where they go from here and how it continues to differentiate itself from what Elasticsearch is doing. Because even from here, they can go any direction they want to. It's, you know, it's the community's decision where they want to go. Uh, and that could be really interesting and really quite compelling. All right. Well, EKS Anywhere uh, you know, is finally now generally available. Only two weeks late for my summit prediction. <laughs> uh, and you know, with the general availability of EKS Anywhere, they want you to know that you can run EKS Anywhere as long as Anywhere is on top of VMware. Ah, interesting. (laughs) Yeah, so EKS Anywhere provides an installable software package for creating and operating Kubernetes clusters on-premises and automation tooling for cluster lifecycle support. And EKS Anywhere brings a consistent AWS manager experience to your DC building on the strengths of Amazon EKS Distro and the open source distribution of Kubernetes. Uh, They want to point out that EKS Anywhere is also open source, uh, as well as it supports a variety of products, including Flux, EKS CTL, Cilium, and many other plugins. And it supports vSphere 7.0 or higher. Uh, they do recommend that you run three control plane nodes and three worker nodes uh, to get HA and rolling upgrades on top of your VMware cluster. Uh, but then they also synced in this little announcement that the EKS connector is now in preview, which allows you to take uh, basically any Kubernetes cluster and connect it to EKS console. Uh, this supports any Kubernetes cluster, including self-managed clusters on EC2 or in your data center, as well as EKS Anywhere clusters or any Kubernetes cluster running outside of AWS um, on Azure or GCP. Uh, so all good there. There are a couple different connectivity modes for this. Uh, you can be fully connected, partially disconnected, and fully disconnected. Uh, for fully connected and partially disconnected, you can see the cluster in your EKS console via that EKS connector. So you can limit the scope to just that EKS connector talking to AWS Cloud, and that way you get a partial management. 
the security model is slightly different than the traditional shared responsibility model, of course, because it's running on your premise in VMware. And so they do recommend you read the security best practices for EKS Anywhere. And then uh, if you'd like to have AWS support, uh, you can get support as long as you have enterprise support already and you're willing to pay uh, quite a bit of money. <laughs> so you can get EKS <laughs> Anywhere for free, but if you want support, uh, it'll cost you 24000 per cluster per year or 18000 per year if you commit to a three-year commitment uh, on that support per cluster. So that's quite a bit. Uh, you know, we, we like to make fun of Google Anthos uh, for their $10,000 a month. So this is still less than that, <laughs> but uh, still quite a bit. Well, I don't know that that still exists for Anthos either. Uh, they do give you some more things now, but I think the $10,000 still exists. I think this is prohibitively priced so that they don't have to support whatever crazy custom thing you have in your <laughs> exactly. on-prem. So like, no, let's make this really expensive. It's the... We don't want you to really do this right now because we're still it's still early days of EKS anywhere, and we'd like to make it. We like to have the kinks out with customers who are willing to pay us, and then when it works better, we'll offer you cheaper options. Yeah. I definitely like the concept of paying for support instead of paying license fees, even though license fees mm-hmm. usually come with support. And that's the one main thing you get. Uh, so mm-hmm. I don't I don't hate that. I do hate that it's only on yeah. VMware though. That part that's yeah. really strange. I wonder if that's like a tell into. Like it seems like a stretch, but I wonder if it's a tell into how Amazon is managing their own EKS infrastructure. If that's something that, that's already built out, or if that's just the thing they had to build to enable it I, out for I mean, I assume that most customers are running VMware. I mean, it's it's an easy way. It's probably most customers prefer to run on top of VMs than on bare metal. So I I see it being your first launch point. I assume it gets expanded to other things to like bare metal and, and other platforms yeah. in the future. But right now it's probably you know, market share wise, it's probably the best choice for customers to get started. Yep. You said all the things I was going to say. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, John. <laughs> Those things. Yeah. You're welcome. Say it again, but with a British accent. Uh, listen no. to you. Or just say it again and edit Justin out later. <laughs> yeah, there you go. You can do it too. I talked too much already. <laughs> I actually, um, I, I, I hope that the, the reason they're integrating with VMware only is because they're deeply integrating with that platform and that they can spin up new VMs and deploy new infrastructure and, and provide the scaling that you really need to make EKS anywhere work the way it works in the cloud. Um, and I, I also hope that they do the same for ECS anywhere and, and have much better integrations with on-prem so that you can also provision um, those virtualized resources on the fly and, and make it very much more like a, a cloud-type environment, even in a private data center. Yeah, well, that's, that's sort of what they did with RDS, right? Because in RDS world, you did the RDS on-prem with VMware. It would, they kind of you know deployed a small little helper VM that would connect to the VMware APIs, and then it would do all the spin-up and spin-down of the resource for you. So I assume they're using similar. Yeah, and that was pretty expensive too, right? That was, that was pretty fine. Yeah. It was expensive too, yeah. I wouldn't hold your breath for ECS and VMware. I do think that the, a lot of this is writing the Tanzu um, components of VMware. And so that native integration with Kubernetes is is already part of the <laughs> scary. But I think a lot of people are going to include so me. Now, so now you're using EKS anywhere and you have to pay for Tanzu APIs. I see, <laughs> I see a Trojan horse. This is a yeah. killer, dude. This is the problem with all this. How many how many people can you pay friggin' ten bucks a vCPU for licensing to <laughs> just to just to orchestrate your infrastructure? And if 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 any of our listeners thinks that paying all those people is a good idea, I promise to undercut that by at least a hundred dollars a month, and I will I will provide a solution. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
All right. Well, if you're in the streaming video place uh, where you need to stream a lot of HD 4K video, uh, Amazon has a new box for you, a new instance type, the new VT1 instance for live multi-stream video transcoding. Uh, this is of course, driven by an explosion of content creators who are seeking live delivery with a great image quality all via YouTube. Uh, the new Easy2 VT1 instances are designed to provide the best price performance for multi-stream video transcoding with resolution up to 4K Ultra HD. These servers include a Xilinx Alveo U30 Media Accelerator Transcoding Card with accelerated H.264 slash AVEC and H.265 HEVC codecs and provide a 30% better price per stream compared to the latest GPU-based EC2 instances and up to 60% better than the EC, uh, CPU-based EC2 instances. Uh, customers with their own live broadcasting and streaming video pipelines can use VT1 instances to transcode streams with resolutions uh, with networking interfaces up to 25 gigabytes that can ingest multiple streams over IP with low latency and low jitter. Uh, it comes in three sizes, the 3X large, the 6X large, and the 24X large. And they go anywhere from one uh, Xilinx U30 to eight of them, or eight to 64 1080p 60 streams, for instance. Uh, and you can also couple this with ECS or EKS to use that to help transcode your workloads. Uh, it will cost you anywhere from $475 a month for the V1 uh, VT1 3X large, or $3,796 per month for the VT1.24X large. But that one does come with all eight Xilinx cards. So there you go. What a novel idea using GPUs for graphics processing. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, something I can get to run Zoom so that I can have Slack, Chrome, and Zoom all at the same time without like causing a small structure fire. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the largest one only has 192 gigs of memory. I'm not sure that it, it'll work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a snap camera. Uh, backhands and things. <laughs> I think it's like yeah. a, another point for, for Justin and his prediction for the verticalization of cloud, though, because as much as you like to think that compute can do anything, generalized compute can do anything, and, and you know, x86 and ARM can, can do pretty much anything. But there's definitely this focus in optimizing for very specific types of workloads, whether it's machine learning or whether it's the entertainment industry or video, you know, video things like this. So um, it's interesting to see such specific use cases being um, being rallied like this. I guess. Yeah, I mean, the kind of the only differentiation you used to have was HPC computing, right? Which was very specialized hardware. Uh, but yeah, everything now I think is driven by cloud in a big way, where you know you pay by the drip. So uh, now I need to make the drip as most efficient as possible. And if I can give you dedicated silicone to do that, that's the best thing for me. And so it's, it's quite interesting, uh, this pivot. Uh, and, you know, this all plugs, of course, onto all of the Amazon media uh, capabilities as well. So you get that benefit, too, of the entire build pipeline for streaming and video production, all powered by the cloud that you pay for by the drip. So I was hoping you could do this lightning round because I was going to make some joke about how yeah, the only reason Jeff Bezos wanted this was, was so he could live stream all the court hearings. <laughs> from the lawsuits for SpaceX yeah. <laughs> yeah. and Microsoft now. <laughs> oh man! <laughs> but you didn't move it, yeah. so yeah. yeah. You didn't good. say to move it when we walked through the topic, <laughs> so I didn't see it until I read it. it. Was literally reading it out loud, and then I thought, "Oh, you wanted to move the sliding ramp." Yeah. Hey everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. 
If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. All right, let's move to GCP. Uh, Cloud Run, which a couple weeks ago got uh, the capability to have dedicated uh, CPUs, uh, is now giving you additional capabilities with the addition of CPU allocation controls. Uh, CPU allocation controls allow you to basically uh, do background processing, which apparently was a problem with Cloud Run before. Uh, If you had asynchronous tasks or you had other use cases, uh, those tasks would not get the CPU they needed to actually complete, and those jobs would die. Uh, So by enabling this now fully... Uh, full allocation of CPU, uh, you can now unlock several use cases, including executing background tasks, uh, leveraging monitoring agents like OpenTelemetry, using Go's uh, Go routines or Node.js async, uh, Java threads, and Kotlin subroutines. You can move your Spring Bootcamp apps that use built-in scheduling background functionality or listen for Firestore changes to keep an in-memory cache up to date. Uh, combined with the new Cloud Run minimum instances, you can even keep a certain number of containers up running with full access to the CPU resources at all times. Uh, when you opt into the CPU always allocated, you are billed for the entire lifetime of the container instance from when a container is started to when it's terminated. However, if you use always allocated to you, uh, you will not be charged per request fee, and the CPU is priced 25% lower and memory 20% lower with committed use discounts of 17% for a 12-month commit. So all I can see here is Google wants you to use this instead because they want the discounts and to get you that way. Instead of, I mean, instead of GKE, like this, I really don't understand why you would have like a, a cloud run function that's just constantly basically on and building. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it, <laughs> always on serverless. This, it's, it's a weird article. And I feel like we've kind of come full, full circle. Like we've, we've, we've got serverless now that has servers and we've got event driven uh, platform as a service that does things when there aren't events to drive it. But I, I think really it, it kind of goes back to what the changes that were in Lambda uh, last year sometime. Where you you can now re, you can return a response to a customer quickly because that's what customers expect. But then you can continue to do some processing on the back end. You can continue to submit the telemetry or make whatever changes elsewhere that you need to do. And in a way, it kind of breaks the the restfulness of the whole the whole thing, right? Because if that if that second part doesn't succeed, then your client has no way of knowing. Maybe it doesn't matter in that case. Well, and it's weird too because you when you do this allocation, you set it to the entire Cloud Run service, right? You don't set it to just you know this execution. So like. You know, you could say I want. You know, if you could say I want ten of these that are always allocated, and then everything else I want to be burstable, I could see that that play. But yeah, it's a little weird to me because you'd actually have to define two different cloud run services: one that's burstable and one that's always allocated, and then basically route the traffic between both of them, uh, which is sort of weird. Yeah, yeah. The, the whole seventeen percent for for a committed use of an event driven service kind of I don't know how how does I get my head around architecting for that? <laughs> I mean, yeah. It's sort of, I guess it's like pre-provisioned capacity at that point. If if you if you if you always know you might need this much compute, then it's still event-driven as far as the application goes. But it's it's always yours. So oh, like a server, okay. <laughs> kind of like kind, kind of, yeah. It's like yeah. A, it's a server <laughs> server or a container. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's the part I don't understand. Is like what what is the advantage of developing against you know a serverless function? You know, like because I get it for containers we do that a lot, right? We we sort of break the containers and then we'll, we'll launch an EC2 that just runs one container because we like the portability of it and the development. And so like, is there a, is there an advantage here that I'm just not seeing where I get to develop my serverless thing, but in a way where it's, I am keeping the same form factor, but I'm getting that. Well, I mean, do they have a way to run like Fargate where you don't worry about any of this at this point and it's completely managed for you? And this is, 
kind of like your Fargate always on container that you don't have to manage any of the infrastructure for? Because I know they have like the, the GKE thing where they automatically run your stuff for you. Uh, but that's mm-hmm. still that's still instances in your account. They're just running them. They're just handling the management of those. Well, I thought uh, that's what Cloud Run was was that Fargate like fire and forget sort of compute. But this isn't that. So no. Yeah, I, I don't. Yeah, I, I can see your guys' confusion on the run the use cases. I, <laughs> yeah, where you even writing this up? I was like, this is sort of weird, but yeah, I'm going to go with it at this moment. So. And this, I think this is where you get when accountants meet tag people. You know. Uh, accountants. <laughs> <laughs> the FinOps person was like, you know, I really want a discount yeah. on this workload. And the develop team is like, that's event-driven. You don't want a discount yeah. on that. And they're like, well, this my FinOps guy really wants this. And so maybe that's where this came from. Maybe, maybe so. It's like, well, you know, but we have this amount of commitment that we're doing all the time. That, you know, I should get a discount for that sustained usage because I get a discount if I was on containers or I was on instances. I, I don't know. I mean, that's the argument. And so I have seen that. I've seen enough concurrency and enough stuff with it within Lambda that, that you know you see enough load where there is a certain amount of of you know where I can see someone making that. Like we have enough scale, we should try to get a discount on it. So I guess this is maybe how they make that play. But but then you know, so you got savings plans in AWS for Lambda functions. Yeah. So yeah, you know, there's other ways to do this, <laughs> which makes a lot more sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. My next prediction is it'll be stateful cloud functions. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. They're running containers. <laughs> yeah. If Ben Kehoe uh, yeah. was doing a lot with Google Cloud, I would love to get his opinion on this because mm-hmm. yeah, as a serverless purist, I'm sure this would bug him to no end. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, if you uh, are in Canada and you need a region uh, for your data, Toronto is now open. Congratulations. Uh, they're excited to announce that Toronto region, eh? Uh, Toronto is the 28th cloud region connected by Google's high-performance network, helping customers better serve their users and customers throughout the globe. Uh, in combination with the Mon- Montreal region, customers now benefit from improved BCP capabilities. And the new region includes three zones and includes the core Google portfolio, including Compute Engine, App Engine, Google Kubernetes, Bigtable, Spanner, and BigQuery. And they're committed to bringing new cloud products and capabilities to Canada. And its goal is to allow you to access those services quickly and easily where you might be in the country. What do you think about a boot, Matt? <laughs> Great progress. <laughs> I, you know, like any any announcement in Canada, I'm trying to leverage this to see how I can go to a Maple Leafs Ooh. game somehow out of this. That's that's it's pretty awesome. I, you know, I like it. They're just sorry they didn't open it sooner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was I was looking at the map and I was like, you know, all of the cloud regions are in Montreal and Toronto. Yeah. Uh, none of them are in Vancouver, which makes me sad because I love Vancouver. <laughs> but put the re- put one there. Just then I can go visit the Canucks and the Toronto Maple Leafs. Yeah, I mean, I imagine it'll come eventually. It's just the, I think the majority of Canada's population is is definitely East Coast focused. Yeah, no, like fifty percent of the entire population is you know below this little red line that you draw across the Great Lakes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yes, like the majority of the population is on that coast. So that makes sense. Uh, well, you know, when the Edmonton Mall goes out of business, the you know biggest mall in America, they can turn that into a data center. No, oh. or biggest mall in the yeah the world. Wait, <laughs> like in America, really? Not America. <laughs> oh, Americas, the bigger Americas. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. But yeah. All right, and then uh, code samples can now be directly run in the Google Cloud documentation. I think we previously talked about an announcement where you could actually customize the Google uh, code samples they gave you in the yeah. documentation as you're using it. This now allows you to actually run that code in the cloud shell directly from the documentation, which is great as long as it's not the delete uh, operation code samples <laughs> that you didn't mean <laughs> to actually run in production. Uh, but you can sign into your Google account 
open the Cloud Shell online terminal in the documentation and run code as you're reading it about it right now in the terminal. So there you go. That's pretty awesome. I did to say the documentation people at Google, top notch. Yeah. <laughs> like well, all the Seriously. all the things they all the stuff they've been doing there is like innovative. It's interesting. Yeah. It's it's cool. I can see the value of it. And it's like everyone else has terrible docs. Or mm-hmm. or in the favor of Amazon, you know, docs that are 10 years old that are now outdated that they won't take off the internet for some reason. I'm picturing one person who runs all their windows like in maximize mode, being like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> What is some kind of cloud shell uh, Stack Exchange integration now? So I can just highlight text from Stack Exchange and have it run for me automatically. Yes, <laughs> getting closer. That'd be cool. <sighs> Make millions. Get a Google Chrome plugin that just your cloud shell is just running right below <laughs> yeah. all the time. Be neat. That'd be neat. Genius idea. I mean, terrible, but genius. <laughs> How about the little Russian roulette? You do a little uh, just random, you run random code samples that you pick. Mm. See what happens. <laughs> What could go wrong? <laughs> I mean, with that kind of segue of Russian roulette, we can move into Asia. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Well done. For listeners of the Cloud Pod, you know that I have no love for Microsoft Active Directory, which is why I'm excited to tell you about the leading cloud directory platform, JumpCloud. JumpCloud makes it easy to solve today's IT challenges by unifying device and user management through a single pane of glass enabling you to securely manage your users and devices and perform common tasks like onboarding and offboarding remote workers. With JumpCloud, you no longer need to implement an on-premise Active Directory infrastructure or additional tooling to scope a user's access, and you can ensure that the user is coming from trusted devices and networks. Enabling JumpCloud's zero-trust solutions improves the security and compliance of your network, ensuring users have access only to the services they need when they need them. To start your organization's move to a modern, secure hybrid work model, try JumpCloud for free today at cloud.jumpcloud.com slash thecloudpod. That's cloud.jumpcloud.com slash thecloudpod. So Azure uh, doesn't have any announcements that I thought were worthy of the main show. Uh, but they, uh, you know, we talked about Chaos DB a few weeks ago and how bad that was. And, uh, you know, I now sad to report that since we last uh, talked about this, there's been two more oopses that we should probably tell you about that you should probably be aware of because they're kind of a big deal. Uh, so the first one is uh, was found by Unit 42, which is Palo Alto's network security research team. Uh, Unit 42 researchers have had it and disclosed the critical service issue in ACI or Azure Container Instances, which is their container as a service offering uh, for Microsoft. Uh, and they say this is the first cross-account container takeover, which is not a great first to have Azure. Sorry. Uh, a malicious Azure user could have exploited these issues to execute code on other users' containers, steal customer secrets and images deployed to the platform, and possibly abuse ACI's infrastructure for crypto mining. Unifor named this vulnerability Azurescape, the first cross-account container takeover in the public cloud. Doesn't roll off the tongue, but man. That is rough. Azurescape allowed... <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. Uh, Azurescape allowed malicious users to compromise the multi-tenant Kubernetes cluster hosting ACI, establishing full control over other users' containers. Uh, Microsoft patched ACI shortly after the disclosure, and Unit 42 is not aware of any exploitation of Azurescape in the wild. As a precaution, they recommended revoking privilege credentials that were deployed to the platform before August 31st and checking your access logs. Uh, to exploit this attack, a malicious attacker would have to do the following things. Deploy an image exploiting the vulnerability, which was CVE-2019-5736, to ACI. This is an image would then break out upon execution and establish code execution on the underlying node. And on the node, it would then monitor the traffic for the Kubelet port on 10.2.5.0 and wait for the request that included a JWT token in the authorization header and issue an AZ container exec to a run command on the uploaded container. The bridge pod will now send an exec request to the Kubelet on the compromised node. 
And on that note, extract the bridge token from the request authorization header and use it to pop a shell on the API server and do whatever the hell you want it to. Ouch. Yeah. That sucks. Yeah. If any of those tokens were encrypted in transit, right? And we're hard to sniff. Or why are you even sending it? Like, do you need to send that token in that request? And that's actually the fix they gave is that they removed sending the token on the yeah. request because uh, it didn't need to be there, which, you know, yeah, it shouldn't have been there at all. And the fact that they could do any of that. But, you know, this is, this vulnerability is, it's labeled 2019, which means it, came, it was first found in 2019. And, Indeed. you know, we're in 2021 and this hasn't been patched. I mean, come on, Azure. <laughs> like, that's ridiculous. Yeah, no, that's rough. So if that wasn't good, bad enough, then they came the next one. And this one is uh, was named as from Wiz, uh, and Wiz is back. And uh, they saw that last one, and they said, hold my beer. <laughs> and found a new vulnerability in OMI, which is one of Azure's most ubiquitous, yet least known software agents, and is deployed on a large portion of Linux VMs in Azure, as well as many of Microsoft's own tools like the Azure Log Analytics, Azure Diagnostics, and Azure Security Center as Microsoft uses OMI extensively behind the scenes as a common component for many of its management services. I did not know what this was, but apparently OMI is the Unix Linux equivalent of WMI, which no wonder it got hacked, because WMI <laughs> is terrible. It allows users to manage configurations across remote and local environments and collect statistics. Due to the ease of use and abstraction that OMI provides, it's used extensively across Azure. Uh, OMI agents are also used on-premise for the management of Linux machines, for example. It's a key part of Microsoft System Center for Linux. OMI is a good target as it runs as root with high privileges. And this was just closed on Microsoft on June 1st and patched on September 8th. Wow. This is what happens when you let Microsoft take a perfectly secure operating system like Linux and turn it into Windows to run their cloud. <laughs> oh my goodness. Did you say perfectly secure? Spoken like a true Oracle guy. <laughs> wow. I mean, this you read through this and it's just like, oh, that's bad. Oh, that's worse. Oh, it's much worse. You know, like, it's just rough. <laughs> Yeah, it's rough three all months, the way down. Though, three months is, yeah. is uh, that's a long time to fix something so ubiquitous in an environment. Well, I wonder if that's part of it. I wonder if it's just so distributed right. everywhere that it's hard to find it well, all. It was, it was, it was four vulnerabilities they exploited to do this. Uh, all twenty-one. Oh no, these are all twenty twenty-one vulnerabilities. So they're all new, which is good. Uh, they weren't sitting around for two years, but yeah, that's that's pretty brutal. Uh, you know, the one thing that I, that you know bothers me the most with this is Wiz goes on in their blog post to talk about secret agents. Uh, as they call them, and the danger these can lead to if you're not cared for properly. And so, yeah, you know, your your cloud-provided images may have agents that you may not understand that have things inside of them that are doing things you don't understand. Um, and that's a that's a security risk. And so you need to be cognizant of those things. And, and you know, the, the challenge they were saying about this OMI thing is there's no way to update it. Like, it, it gets updated automatically by Microsoft when they release new versions of it. Uh, and even in the, in the push request they did to the GitHub repo, it said something like, security enhancements. <laughs> So you don't even know what the issue was because there was just, you know, the push was security enhancements. So that doesn't help anybody at all. <laughs> Oof. And we wonder why Wiz only got paid 40, 40K for the for the last vulnerability for the Cosmos DB thing. I think it's because Microsoft had already ran out of money paying out all these other vulnerabilities. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, hope, I hope that this all my one was also a $40,000 vulnerability. So, yeah, you know, at no, least. It's a big deal. Yeah. So that's a you know not a great time in the Asia world, and if only there was a shining knight uh, who could come in and help them solve this problem. Where would where would he come from? Though? And uh, <laughs> you know I can tell you that they have one. Yeah, in the waiting at least. You know maybe maybe a place that you know believes in security as day zero tasks. You know and something from day zero needs. What mythical land is this? 
you know, something like Amazon, perhaps. And, <laughs> you know, Microsoft has apparently confirmed the hiring of Charlie Bell, which we talked about here a few weeks ago. Uh, and he'll be leading a newly formed engineering organization to address cybersecurity and related issues. Uh, but Microsoft said it has so far been unable to reach an agreement with Amazon over Bell's non-compete contract with the company, which will be quite interesting to see how that shakes out. But, uh, you know, there was a quote here in this article from Frank Shaw, Microsoft's corporate vice president of communications. Uh, we believe Charlie Bell's new role can help advance cybersecurity for the country and the tech sector as a whole, and we are committed to continuing our constructive discussions with Amazon. We're sensitive to the importance of working through these issues together, as we've done when five recent Microsoft executives moved across town to work for Amazon. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> one of these things Zing. is not like the other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like we want one of your people. We gave you five of ours. We yeah. would like you to agree with us. Like we agree with you on those five. And apparently, Amazon's not being so nice about really? that. Uh, Charlie Bell also posted on his LinkedIn. Uh, I'm thrilled to join Microsoft to take on one of the greatest challenges of our time: leading a newly formed engineering organization in security, compliance, identity, and management. As a digital service, ha- uh, digital services have become an integral part of our lives. We're outstripped our ability to provide security and safety. It's constantly highlighted in the headlines we see every day. Fraud, theft, ransomware attacks, public exposure of private data, and even attacks against physical infrastructure. This has been weighing on my mind, and the best way I can think of it, uh, I can think to describe it as digital medievalism, where organizations and individuals each depend on the walls of their castles and the strength of their citizens against bad actors who simply retreat to their own castle with the spoils of an attack. We all want a world where safety is an invariant, something that is always true, and we can constantly prove we have. We all want digital civilization, and I believe Microsoft is the only company in the position to deliver this, and I couldn't be more excited to work with this talented team to make the world safer for every person and organization on the planet. Charlie Bell. So there you go. So he's got a lot of work to do. Why don't you just focus on Microsoft right now? I appreciate your your grander vision of the world, uh, but you got problems (laughs) in-house. I was all bought into that analogy until he said Microsoft is the only company in position right. to deliver this. Yeah. Like, hey, well, Microsoft <laughs> yeah. has the biggest incentive right now, maybe. But mm, yeah, uh, I mean, I don't know if he would have the opportunity at, my, at Amazon, right? I mean, there's a whole security team that he's not part of there, and you know, if you have this background, you have this passion, and you can't get your narrative approved at, my, at Amazon, then you take it to Microsoft and you get a job with it. You think this is this was his job? When the original announcement came out, because I I don't buy it. I think that they. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is sort of like, uh, you. What are you doing? Uh, yeah. Can you go fix this terrible problem we have? And that's a possibility too, right? Like that's the you know. Oh, Amazon says they'll eventually allow you to do something in security if you want to do security. And they're like, fine, you're in charge of security or engineering. <laughs> so, <laughs> if anyone asks, tell them you're in charge of security and engineering. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah. Where's the last guy? Shut up. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's hope next week we don't have to have another security vulnerability on Azure or any of our other cloud providers for that matter. Yeah. Because that was pretty rough. Uh, rough. And, you know, hug ops and hug security, I guess, mm-hmm. in this case. But, uh, man, that's rough all around. And, uh, you know, I think they'll take us lightning around, Peter. Let's start off with Amazon Aurora. It now supports AWS Graviton 2-based T4G instances. I'm waiting for the T1000 models because uh, they are much more into the Terminator thing. Mm. But, you know, Aurora, it's so relational. So, relation. It's relational. <laughs> Blew it in execution. I was the fluid robot and the relation database. I got I screwed it up. One more time from the top. <laughs> Once more with feeling. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. It's not going to get any Just better. Worse. We all know. <laughs> and we, we, we've seen me retry. Take 46. <laughs> <laughs> and to the listeners we've already cut out like 30 minutes of Ryan trying to get the joke right <laughs> yeah right <laughs> <sighs> 
All right, come on, dude. One more time. <laughs> How about AWS Health Aware, AHA, I'm not calling it a ha, is now available for organizational and personal AWS accounts to customize health alerts. Aha, it's down. <laughs> I told you on the alert. So I thought this was just, aha, I have cancer. <laughs> oh, God. Like everything, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. Too soon, Norm MacDonald. Too soon. Yeah, yeah, Norm. Yeah, true, true. AWS code build now supports a small arm machine type. It's good because it costs you an arm and a leg. Ooh. Mm, very nice. <laughs> yeah. I was gonna try for a small arms and a weaponry thing, but yeah, you know, I got I'm not competing with that. I was like a T-Rex joke. There could be a T-Rex joke in there somewhere. Oh, T-Rex would have been good. <laughs> oh, yeah. that would have been good. Well, small arms. If only we read the notes earlier and had time to develop that joke. There's what's that what's that Disney movie? Your son has to watch it. The the Disney movie with the uh, the, kid, the little scientist boy, and there's the you know he goes back in time or goes to the future and finds out his family you know he was adopted and all that. What's the name of that movie? But uh, they have a they have a Tyrannosaurus Rex who the villain sends after him, and he's trying to get them, and he's can't get it. He can't get to him, and then he stops and turns the villains like I have these tiny arms. This is a really bad plan. I don't know what you're thinking. Amazon SES now supports emails with a message size of up to 40 megabytes. <laughs> because everyone needs to receive 40 megabit emails to fill up their Google quotas <laughs> that have yeah. been getting bigger forever. This just means that I can change my signature footer to like include like a GIF and a small movie, maybe a documentary about you know my personal skills. You should put a flash file into it. Ooh. So many. I mean, nothing will open it, but you know, at least yeah. it's a flash file. Just, <laughs> just wasted space of. I'm going to email a PowerPoint presentation now. <laughs> yeah, we're not. Someone was so mad they were like, "I cannot send a 40 megabit file through your SES service, and I need this. I need this capability." Someone's yeah. so mad about that. Versus just you know, put it in S3 and put a pointer record in the email, and then they can grab it. It's going to suck. No, no. It's going to suck for the, um, the the secure file transfer companies who specialize in. Providing services, you know, to, to move files via email, which which couldn't previously move via email. Like now, you can. So, I mean, this is a trick because you know what's going to happen is everyone has like a five or ten megabit mailbox limit, you know, for mail such a size. So this is going to include your you know your spam catch. So it's going to have more bounce backs, and then Amazon going to have more quota requests for bounce back emails and more people getting blacklisted for abusive emails. It's perfect. Mm-hmm. And we have a new tool that would allow us to maybe bring back the email bomb. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Amazon Code Guru reviewer enhances security findings generated by GitHub Actions by adding severity fields and CWE tags. I mean, if only I can find those CWE tags that Microsoft missed in 2019. Ooh. Ooh. Nice. I think that takes it. Yeah. It's a good tie-in. It's like comedians who yeah. tie into their first joke. <laughs> As as the grand yeah. finale, I, I will take that point. Yeah. The callback, yeah, yeah. I'll, t- I'll take the callback joke. That's fine. Okay. All right. Well, things are still coming up once again here in the cloud. Uh, Azure, Azure's data governance framework on September twenty eighth is the next one up here on the list. Uh, for all people who want data governance, this is the event for you. Uh, available to you now. Go sign up for that right away because the show is probably coming out right before that gets announced, you know, a week before, so you don't have a lot of time. SNCConf uh, 2021, October 5th through the 7th is virtual and free to you. Uh, KubeCon, October 11th through the 15th, if you want to learn all about the complexities of JSON, 
It's a great summit for you. And then Google Cloud Next, October 12th through the 14th, is coming up very quickly, less than a month away. Uh, and I will tell you that uh, they just released the Google Cloud Next session catalog, and you can now build your custom playlist of videos that you'd like to watch when they drop them on the 13th and 15th. Uh, there are fantastic things like the, t- the keynote uh, from Thomas Curian, uh, as well as the technical infrastructure leader, uh, Urs Holes, will be doing a keynote sessions for this, as well as there'll be a developer platform state of the union, the data cloud, simplify and transform with universal data platform, data analytic strategies and roadmaps, turning your data into differentiated features, and then what's new and what's next infrastructure for AI and ML, as well as transforming your business operations with no-code apps, where we will find Peter tuning in for sure. You know me, I like to draw my apps. I'll all be available to you up there. I know you do. And then, of course, HashiConf uh, comes right after that. So busy October for us here at the CloudPod. Lots of things going on. I'm sure lots of announcements, lots of things to talk about. And then uh, heading into November, we've got the Government and Education Summit, uh, November 3rd and the 4th. And the AWS reInvent, of course, coming up at the end of November. So there you go. Uh, I do believe that we are still on today as a recording. reInvent <laughs> is still happening. Uh, you know, Condolences to... Uh, Adam Slipsky, who and I saw his nephew passed away from COVID uh, on Twitter. That's, a, that's unfortunate. My condolences to him and the family. Uh, you know, I'm sure that is weighing heavily on the requirement to require vaccinations uh, at reInvent, as well as maybe thinking about, should we really do this? <laughs> I don't know if it makes sense. And I suspect if a fourth wave starts in the fall, this conference isn't happening. Yeah. So we'll see. There is a bit of good news, just in numbers, um, which is like the a lot of the numbers have plateaued or or are demonstrating maybe the peak is past us for at least this this wave so yeah definitely the august wave is on the decline which is good so mm-hmm. the, they're saying you know the next one potentially could be in the fall typically when flu spikes up and people start heading back indoors so we'll see we'll see where we end up hopefully uh not not too much of anything else but uh, get vaccinated please and that is it for another fantastic week here in the cloud thanks guys good night bye everybody And that is the week in the cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Foghorn Consulting and Jump Cloud. Check out our website, the home of the Cloud Pod, where you can join our newsletter, Slack team, and send feedback or ask questions at thecloudpod.net or tweet us with the hashtag thecloudpod. Cloud Pod.